0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It has been a minute, maybe the longest minute of all time. Uh, I recorded this conversation with Ian McKenzie that you're about to hear at the beginning of the summer. And it has just sat in a folder since then uh, to my great confusion because I really enjoyed having this conversation and was uh, looking forward to releasing it. But things were being transmuted and transformed this summer in ways that up until now I didn't quite realize. And in retrospect, now listening back to this conversation, I see how much of what changed for me and what was going on this past summer can really be seen through so many of the topics that Ian and I discussed. It was like as if this planted some sort of seed or was the catalyst for me really not even just thinking about things but living into things in ways that I hadn't before and I can't necessarily even say it was intentional. Uh, I just posted a piece, a short piece on Substack, which you can find at uh, called Living Life and Not Making Content About It where the summer and the activities that took place been writing for the local paper, helping to plan the energy fair, volunteering at two local gardens, just really my life kind of took a hold and made coming online, uh, whether that was to record and post new podcasts or to write, you know, coming online to talk about these ideas around community felt so much less interesting than actually being a participant in the community that I found myself in. And again, none of that was intentional, but I feel as if there's been such a shift this past summer that, you know, unconsciously, deep down, was affecting my feelings of inspiration and passion and connection to this project and this podcast. And, you know, I always talk about how this project has remained super inspiring for me and remained relevant because I feel like I set out for it to be that, not really pressuring myself to release episodes, you know, and at any given time, having it be regular or irregular, frequent or infrequent, <laughs> really opening myself up to whatever topic I wanted to talk about. And so it's really been able to grow with me and remain relevant and inspiring. And uh, Interestingly, I I also was thinking about how I was talking to a friend of a friend who came to visit Crestone, who's a photographer, sort of working on a project of her own, and she was asking me some questions about my podcast, and I remember saying that to her even just a few months ago about how grateful I was that the project, this project, A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, has never felt stale and never felt uninspiring and then something happened. <laughs> um, and I feel like what happened over this past summer is that what I've recognized is that i've I really started living the life that before I'd only really been talking about. And when I first started this podcast to refresh our memory briefly uh, was five years ago, uh, two years after I'd gotten a divorce and went through a pretty difficult, isolating, world view shifting <laughs> dark night of the soul and i really felt like i was at you know ground zero in a way i had ended my marriage i had ended a bunch of my friendships i was in the process of ending my career and i was basically starting over again and so the podcast was this this prayer really for where I hoped to be going. And at the time, of course, I couldn't tell you where I was going, or if it was going to work or not, or where Mm. I would end up. But that is absolutely the structure and the framework through which I created this project was, you know, new dreams, new stories, new futures, like where am I going? Where are we going? Where can we go together? And I feel like this past summer, I've now been living in Crestone full-time for a year. You know, I always sort of felt like I lived here before because I would spend these eight-month stretches here and um, have been coming here on and off for the past five, four, five years now. Um, but the truth is that I never really, I never sunk in Um we were here for a lot of time during COVID. We never really got to meet people. We weren't doing things in the community. And so I did get to know the landscape and the weather and all of that. But I, I wasn't a part of the community until now. And all of that really ramped up this past summer to the point where, interestingly and totally organically, my interest and inspiration to talk about these big ideas around community, around where we were headed... All of that just took a back seat to actually working on those things in real life, and that's beautiful, of course, and that's a success story, and you know that's an answered prayer. Uh, but it it hadn't it didn't really occur to me. It, it wasn't occurring to me over the past few months that that's what was going on, and maybe in I don't know the past few weeks it's really begun to sunk in for me that I feel ready to head in a slightly different direction. And meanwhile, I had this podcast, this conversation that I recorded with Ian sitting in this folder while I'm sort of actively recognizing that I think my podcast is coming to an end. (laughs) And what do I do with this great conversation I had with Ian that I just never got around to posting? And really, again, listening back to it just now, It's totally perfect as this sort of, uh, how shall we say, this sort of send off into this new realm and this new direction that I'm headed. And I'm not going to say too much more about this now, although I will say concretely that this podcast is coming to an end. Uh, I will still be on Substack although the name of the substack will likely change eventually. I would love to involve all of you in the renaming and rebranding of this because I have been thinking about it for several weeks now and I'm totally like lost and oversaturated by words and metaphors. Um, so this is going to be the second to last episode of this podcast. I'll record one more that will sort of give more insight into... The changes that are coming and just sort of like a, you know, a uh, nostalgic retrospective on the past five years. So this will be the last really me interviewing someone else kind of episode, which is exciting. I feel like I've been actually quite excited over the past few weeks. Like I felt like I can see how I I feel validated in my decision to end the podcast, because just in thinking about renaming things and focusing more time on writing versus, um, having these conversations, I can sort of see how much, like, I just feel more inspired to write than I ever, than I have in the past six months to a year. Um, and so it really feels like I'm making the right decision. But I feel like today the sort of grief of ending it as well really started to hit me and thinking about how things were wrapping up. Uh, I actually went back and listened to the song that I played in the first episode that I ever posted that I think I will replay in the last episode, the next episode you'll hear. Because it really does encapsulate the same prayer and... Yeah, just really, again, encapsulates so well where I was at that time and where I wanted to go and acknowledging and recognizing that I have gone there in so many ways. And that's miraculous. I know that's a strong word, but that's how I feel about it. Because I spent so long pre-Dark Night of the Soul, really believing much more so even just on an unconscious sort of like pervasive (laughs) level, really believing that these ideas that I had about the way the world could be, about the way my life could be, about the way relationships could be, that that those things were just not possible, that they were far too idealistic for this world. And that belief went unchecked and brought me down a path of total inauthenticity and a lack of aliveness. And to, to to see how wrong I was about that, and to see how possible, even more possible, my big ideas are, and how they actually can be turned into tangible reality... I just feel so grateful that I let go of that old narrative of staying small and being so pessimistic, Uh, but it still does not fail to blow me away how things actually happened. You know, five years ago, for those of you that feel like you're in that dark, helpless, just soul-crushing place you know i think i got decided to get divorced 7 years ago it does not feel that long starting this podcast 5 years ago it feels like things went so fast and you know part of me wishes myself i could i could let my you know 5 year ago 7 year ago self see that all of this was possible but i don't actually think that would have worked Because I feel like I would have been kind of complacent and that, that sort of hungry desire to get to where I wanted to go was so important. Had I just known it was going to happen, I don't think I would have approached it with such fervent, um, yeah, desire and, and passion. But holy shit, like, so much happened and I, I'm certainly not at the end of the road, uh, Although I guess I am geographically, (laughs) um, but I don't feel like I'm at the end of the road with creating what I want to create, but I do definitely feel like a fork in the road has approached and, you know, I don't even necessarily feel that what I'm about to move into is like, you know, me talking about Crestone and what's happening in Crestone. Um, because I still feel like what I'm experiencing can be applied more broadly than that. But it is absolutely a change in perspective. It's it's more about, you know, writing from my actual experience, rather than writing from what I hope, from a from the perspective of what I hope to experience, or what I think might happen, or what I believe would be so. You know, this is This is becoming far more experiential in nature. And so I feel the need to talk from that place. And that place no longer feels 100% aligned with the vision of a millennial's guide to saving the world that I created five years ago. It was a step, but now we have reached the next step, so... I'm trying to not say more. I I could keep going, but we'll save it for the next, the next episode, the final episode. Um. In the meantime, what I will say is, I am absolutely keeping my Substack alive. And so, if you have enjoyed this podcast, even if just for an episode or since its inception in late 2018. Um, please go to Substack and sign up because that's how you will stay up to date on what's going on. The name of the Substack will shift from a Millennial's Guide to something else that I'm not sure of yet. But if you just go to Anya Katz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S.substack.com, you can sign up. It's free. Of course, you can donate to this project if you have the means and feel a desire to do so but it is free to sign up. And who knows, maybe I'll start another podcast in the future. Uh, certainly in the meantime, I'll be writing a lot more. Um, and all of that will be on Substack. I'm also still hosting my book club that is totally still in full swing. Uh, we've I've picked astrologically themed books for the next six months. We're reading Venus and Aphrodite uh, this month in honor of Libra season. And it's not going to be that literal in the future. Uh, like for example, next month, um, we're going into Scorpio season. And so we're going to be reading a book called Conflict is not Abuse. Uh, so it's a, a wide a wide archetypal range of association with the, um, the signs the sun will be moving through over the next six months. Uh, and you can also find that on Substack. And I would imagine that there will be a lot more to come, different groups, different opportunities, different offerings that emerge once I fully sink my feet into the mud of this new path that I've stepped onto, um, but sort of waiting for those to pop up and appear organically as time goes on. So anyacots.substack.com is where you can go if you would like to stay up to date on the projects I'm working on. Okay, that's all I will say for now. I will leave you hanging so that you turn into tune into the next episode. Uh, I decided it might be nice to have Chris, my partner, Chris Ryan, uh, interview me about this project and what's unfolded over the past five years. I think that'll help keep things organized and it'll be nice to have, you know, a differing perspective come in and ask me questions that I may not have thought to address on my own. So... Stay tuned for that. All right. I'm going to play you in with a song by Nick Mulvey called Mountain to Move, which feels very applicable to the conversation that you're about to hear and to the realm that I feel like I've found myself in over the past really, yeah, five years with this project, but um, in a different way over the past year or so living in Crestone so please enjoy the song please enjoy this conversation with ian please also definitely check out his work his film village of lovers we screened it at our sex at dawn retreat this past summer in montana and it was so powerful i've actually now watched it twice and i feel like i gained so much more the second time around um i know he offers people opportunities to uh, organize a screening so if the topics that you hear us talk about are of interest Highly recommend checking out the film or seeing if you can organize a screening. Spread the word. Um, his podcast is also fantastic. So yeah, I feel like I want to hold on. It's, it's, it's a little hard to let go right now, um, but I'm going to. <laughs> Until next time, enjoy the song and enjoy this conversation. I'll catch you on the other end.
1: comparison Looking outside of me Now I see this world is unraveling I wonder who could we be Oh I don't want to see us lose Any more time This moment is a mountain to move What's Give me some forgiveness. Give it to me, wholeness. Cause I was lost in comparison. Always pretending I.
0: I'm here with Ian McKenzie. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. I feel like I discovered your work a while ago and don't quite know why it took this long to have you on the show, but alas, glad to be here. I think I discovered your work and heard your podcast The Mythic Masculine for the first time when you interviewed Stephen Jenkinson. And so that was a great intro. And I love Stephen's work and I think I was really I'm also Super interested in masculinity. Just to jump right in and give you my background, my dad is gay, and so I had a very unique, I feel like, relationship to masculinity growing up. Uh, It was always a topic that I was super interested in and passionate about, and had a really great dad, so really loved men. And I was, I really loved Stephen Jenkinson, and was passionate about masculinity, and thought, oh, this is great. I'm really uh, curious to hear what Stephen has to say about that, and was really impressed by your show, actually. I felt like your questions were super intentional and something I noticed. So yeah, glad to have you on.
2: Thanks, Anya. Yeah, there is a story behind that interview I could share.
0: Yeah, I love that.
2: I have been studying with Stephen for over 10 years now. I met him through a mutual friend. And first interview with that, for the first time I did meet him in person was he was coming to teach on Salt Spring Island, which he does sometimes. And my friend was like, you got to meet this guy. And she knew I did film and things like that, right? So she's like, you got to meet him. Maybe there's something there. And I was like, well, yeah. what's he on about? She's like, I don't really know. Just you should definitely meet him. And that's how it happened. So, yeah, I attended a teaching. It was really like, OK, wow, there's something here. And, and then I proceeded to really jump into the school from Wisdom School, which he's co-created with his partner, Natalie, mm-hmm. and lots of tales and, and hilarity and depth ensued. And that particular interview was done, I, I specifically waited to interview Stephen until I could do it in person, because I'm, I live on the West Coast, he's in Ontario, so it's, but I usually would go once or twice a year to the school, but there just so happened to be a global pandemic happening. Right during this time. So I deliberately held off interviewing him remotely because I was like, I just think it's going to be so much better in person. and And that's what I did. So I actually ended up, there was a travel trip I had to do. And then I ended up driving four hours direct with a friend <laughs> to the farm to just basically do that interview in the Mead Hall, which is where the teaching is mostly done mm-hmm. beautiful building all wood ancient just feels ancient you can go in there yeah. and yeah we did the interview in the meet hall which felt perfect and then of course hopped in a car drove four hours back to the airport <laughs> actually directly because i had to catch my flight so that was wow. that was the back story there but uh, yeah so much showed up that was in person in that level of intimacy and the time in that i had with steve i think was obviously showed up too which i was uh, yeah. gr- grateful to draw from.
1: yeah
0: Yeah, it was great. I appreciate him so much because I feel like, and I think you probably have this in common as well, being pulled toward, I don't know, issues or at least parts of issues that can be contentious or taboo or (laughs) misunderstood and going toward them rather than away from them. And I'm curious how that lands for you right now. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, perhaps talking about masculinity and being in that field doesn't feel who or contentious or full of strong opinions but yeah if it does i feel like i i'm really drawn to these things too and i've had like developed my own sort of relationship to do i want to keep talking about something that is misunderstood or miscategorized or i'm seen as representing something i'm actually not i'm curious i guess you've had the podcast now for maybe four years ish
2: Um, Yeah, three and a half years so far. Yeah, about uh, 57 or so episodes. Not a lot of episodes, actually, considering, right? I know some crank out every week or twice a week. I typically like to actually wait till the inspiration strikes or there's an interview that I feel really drawn to. But to first wonder about your question, I'm curious, what other topic areas have you felt (laughs) resistant to speak about? Maybe because of the, as you say, misunderstanding or backlash or contention I'm just curious to get a sense of how, yeah. where, in what realms have you experienced this?
0: Yeah. And I wouldn't say I'm necessarily like kept from speaking about them. I think the podcast was actually very much created for the purpose of doing so. I started my podcast in late 2018 and had been planning to do it for the year prior. So this was right after Trump got elected, the Me Too movement was coming out. I had just gotten divorced. Basically, like, left my entire life started from scratch, like, went through a really brutal dark night of the soul. And I've always been really opinionated. I studied gender and sexuality in college, um, was always interested in topics like non-monogamy, although I got married and was, like, living in San Diego as a food blogger housewife. So, anyway, I've always, yeah, had to go, like, way off track in order to be like, okay, that's never happening again. But, yeah, I think I grew up in, like, a rather unique home environment, which was obviously not perfect, but very forward thinking and open and unconventional and really interested in like social construction and what sorts of things we think are just the norm. I would say like sexuality, gender, relationships... I felt like your film, which I hope to talk about, also covers some of these topics. So especially, and this is why I'm asking, I think over the past few years, gender and how that's linked incorrectly or correctly to femininity and masculinity. Like there's a lot of heat there
2: at the moment. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. more <laughs> yeah. your story as well. Yeah, I would say... So I stepped into the foray with the Mythic Masculine because one, I was interested obviously in that subject matter, mythology, archetypes, culture, gender, all that was also really interesting. I had also just finished a project that was eventually called Amplify Her, which was about women and uh, basically feminine archetypes, women, electronic music. This whole realm I I explored, ended up co-directing a project with uh, a friend, Nicole Sorkin, And that was really, again, a deep dive into the feminine. And through that process, I really became clear to me. I was like, wow, I actually know nothing about masculinity. Which is not actually a surprise when you wonder about it, right? Because it's like, I think a lot of men have a, this is something Alan B. Chinnan talks about in a book, Beyond the Hero. He talks about this fascination, right? With Mm -hmm. feminine or with women. We're just speaking about maybe just hetero relationships for a moment. But men are, I have this drawn kind of fascination and fear right, of women and the feminine. And it can manifest as, of course, a kind of idolization, which maybe I'm doing a lot of research now, actually, into Jungian threads and and Robert uh, Johnson, who wrote the book, He, Understanding Masculine Psychology. He (laughs) talks about this idea, yeah, this idea of anima projection, right, and how men can get caught in this anima projection of essentially projecting their own inner anima on a woman, of course, and then mixing those and getting all sorts of trouble. That's a understandable thing in this culture when men often aren't actually led into any sort of meaningful relationship with what, if we use this map for a second, would be the, quote, interfeminine, that interfeminine landscape. In some ways, I could see myself caught in that too by this fascination of what were these women doing with music and bass, right? And that had been to Burning Man multiple times, and I was just really intrigued. Anyway, it ended up being quite an amazing project that also encompassed a graphic novel series, as well as a documentary film. And so, but through that, I really became clear. Wow, I don't really know much about the masculine. So that launched me into this other inquiry, and there's a whole lots of tales about how that came about synchronistically, mythically. Mm-hmm. But I'll say one of the main absences I see often is what I would call maybe Bly had named as the collapse of the mythic imagination, and so everything becomes a kind of literal landscape of outrage. Right well, that's pretty good, actually. I never said that yeah. literal and by that literal meaning right there's this kind of like hunting for outrage right all the time, and a kind of dissecting of language in a way that is like looking for ways to critique or or deconstruct and you know it can just be very yeah very polarizing, everyone terrified to say the wrong thing or get cancelled, or yeah, it's not quite the right landscape for wonder and and curiosity and maybe arriving at some kind of yeah, shared understandings right? when you're afraid of a misstep. So I felt like I had something to contribute because I wanted to draw upon the previous waves of at least masculinity myth, what's broadly known as the mythopoetic men's movement, but then also bring in other voices, indigenous voices, black voices that weren't as included in that conversation and begin to open it up and provide a bit more of a, my friend Sophie Strand talks about this idea of polyphony. Right, bring in a polyphony of masculinities rather than a kind of battle against the patriarchal monoculture, at least as, as one approach. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that's great. I feel my approach into so many of these topics, it feels a lot better to engage in it as a curator, as you spoke about as well, and collecting different voices and opinions. So, yeah, that's super resonant. I read this morning actually a piece that you wrote also in 2019, so four or so years ago, after you'd been to a Sacred Sons retreat. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about your introduction into the world of masculinity and what that introduction was like, and then also maybe what it's been like over the past few years, and maybe what's sort of shifted for you since then. <laughs> Which I imagine is so much that we could talk about in a whole podcast, but a couple of points.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I'll, maybe I'll clarify. Uh, I think what you're asking is introduction into men's work maybe, yeah, yeah. versus masculinity, right? Yeah. yeah. That's a good... Yeah. And men's work in quotations. I just gave a, a talk locally here. And one of my first questions is I asked the men, what's your relationship to men's work? And knowing that for some men right, who haven't really s- stepped into or encountered this kind of thing, that actually, that, that word, the word doesn't mean anything to them, right? They're great men's work with that. But of course, those who are in the work, it, it immediately means, oh yeah, it, yes, it's men's work. I have a book actually by another friend, Connor Beaton, called Men's Work. We called it that specifically because <laughs> it was the most broad kind of invitation he could make to this kind, this realm. And so um, you brought up the Sacred Sons article. So that was written, as you say, in 2019. It's when I visited their convergence, is what they call them, about 300 men in the desert, in the San Diego area. And uh, it was a powerful time. I I will say though, yeah, at this point, I'd already been doing quote men's work for a number of Mm -hmm. years. More directly, I'd gone through the Mankind Project weekend, which is again, another mostly, fairly well-known men's organization started back in the 80s. And they also provide these like initiatory weekends as well as integration groups and have a whole culture around this. So I'd been in that. Work for some time. And of course, Tamara, which I wouldn't say Tamara specifically offers men's work, but it is a cultural immersion in a very different field of trust. And of course, you've seen the film now, and we can touch on that later. But I would say my experiences there, and also in conversations with other folks like Stephen Jenkinson, and even the founders of the Mankind Project, who I also interviewed one of them. And of course, I've interviewed the guys from Sacred Sons. It's interesting when there's that adage: the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, right. And the more that I research the previous wave of this work, which really seems to have, you know, come forth from second wave feminism and sort of the eighties into the early nineties, and then crest and then go underground in a lot of ways. uh, Because I'd never heard of Iron John, which is one of the main books, of course, that seems to have bloomed and launched this whole first wave as well as King, War, Magician, Lover. That's a very commonly... I never read these until 35, so that was about 2015. And mm-hmm. since then, I think they've actually, of course, grown much more visible again, as men's work has entered into this sort of new renaissance. But I will say the same challenges are present, actually, from the first wave to this wave. And I would say, largely, it's how to integrate a, a kind of individualized work, personal growth workshop culture with an actual living culture right that's really the main conundrum i see because inevitably you get these immersions and these kind of in some ways like they're artificial gathering points right of doing work and then you disperse to your life right stephen jenkinson has this line where he says something like it failed because like the first wave failed initially because you how do you yeah how do you integrate what you do with the lads on the weekend with your nine to five they just they're just too different for so many folks that not to say there's not value, of course, in yeah. a lot of the practices and nervous system skill regulation and building trust and solidarity with other men, like all these have values, of course, but ultimately it's like they like what is that transition from workshop culture to actual culture right and that's not just a men's work question, that's like a general question.' Right? going to say, yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that I've also deeply been inquiring about and really attempting to study certainly through my time in again a place like Tamera where they've really recultured a whole other ecosystem which it could be understood in one way I don't know if they quite say it this way but pre-colonial european pagan society right that's one way or maybe you could even say post-colonial right because of again the yeah. more things change the more they stay the same the spiral coming back around again but anyway, that's just a biff, you know, a bit of lay of the land there.
0: I'm curious also between the relationship between the first wave and second wave as far as like humans and <laughs> elders in the space and what the relationship. I was surprised, or maybe not surprised, but something that I noted in your article that at the time the kind of co-fathers of Sacred Sons were all under 40, which I thought was Interesting. And I'm curious if you've encountered this sort of generational, either ways that the generations are coming together or conflicts between the two, specifically in regard to men's work or how these workshops are being led currently.
2: Yes. Here's a few interesting threads then. So one, there's a direct lineage from Mankind Project to Sacred Sons. Now, Jason McKenzie, who's one of the co-fathers, as they call themselves, he studied with MKP, it's Mankind Project for short, for a number of years, and then branched off after he found limited in where he really wanted to go or to take men. And so he joined, of course, with two others, Aubert and Adam, and they became this triad that then, of course, has grown to what it is now. And what's interesting is that, there's this um tension often between generations which martin shaw i think told me about this and I, of course i think bly and others have spoken to this but archetypally it's this sense of almost the old and the young as the puer and the senex maybe you've heard some of this before but mythically understanding that it's like yeah like the senex is this old like the old ways the tradition the eldership right and this sense that, that things need to have that foundational Like yeah, to stay, to sustain, to be regenerative, you need that foundation. You need that way the way things are done, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the pu'er, which is this youthful, vigorous, imaginal, creative, sometimes rebellious energy that is also needed. In fact, to keep the traditions from getting too stagnant, right, and to getting to lacking that vitality, right. And I imagine it's something like an old folks' home, right, where it's like, what an odd thing to come to a cultural moment or a societal moment where old folks are basically sequestered to what in generally is a supposed to be a nicer way of living to be supported and with each other in a way. But you can imagine there's this kind of removing those old growth trees to be on their own. Is it also a kind of withering, right? When they're embedded within community and there's multiple generations all thriving together and learning from each other and there's the youth bubbling over. It's like that they feed each other, right? And they nourish each other in different ways. And so I see that tension at play between the generations, right? In the men's work and in a way the, yeah, the kind of rush, the, the urge to rush ahead, right? And be like, we want to do it this way. And Ticket Sons seems to have been phenomenally popular now by really harnessing social media, but also bringing in lots of tools that were less available or less developed to the previous generations with nervous system regulation and mm-hmm. shadow work. And I mean, that there's elements of that in the previous generations. But of course, because of the work that's been done, now mm-hmm. is even more available and integrated. And that tension is always in a dance, right? And, and the danger, of course, of running too far ahead without eldership is that you can really not learn from former generations, like why things are done a certain way. And that can be, lead you susceptible to I don't know to create harm to to fall in the same missteps right that the previous generations also encountered, which is also one of my missions was to connect these generations so we could learn from each other.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important. I it was fascinating to witness what I feel like is maybe a literal expression of this conflict in your Advaya masculinities course <laughs> recently in the conversation mm-hmm. with Stephen, where I think he was, you know, as he does, speaking about elderhood and why it's not so popular and how those who are being eldered are part of the process. And this sparked some understandable outrage on behalf of the group. Because obviously, I think, and maybe this hasn't really changed the young people feeling like the old people are screwing things up and the older folks feeling like the young people don't know what they're talking about. And that seems like a constant, something that's omnipresent, but I do feel like it's heightened and maybe I'm making that up, but it feels that is another, I feel like contentious issue. This, who are we looking to or toward as far as retelling these stories for the future? Yeah. I don't know this concept of elderhood, maybe we can broaden it a little bit (laughs) and talk about your relationship to it, not just in the field of men's work, but.
2: Sure. Yeah. I have a lot to say on this Even Steve also wrote a book on it and I've been in this wondering as well for some time. Now, I think it's important to note that we are in a generational gap where what seems to be required to elder and one, you know, I'll draw a lot of my time with Steven here. and Of course, the book Come of Age is a great resource for this. But he says that an elder is not a person. It's a function, right? So elder is a function. And so you can't like elder in a vacuum right it's you need young people right. to elder actually and so in some ways in the, in that understanding it's young people that make elders it's mm-hmm. actually not older right. people conferring upon each other high fives and you're an elder <laughs> so that's one thing and two that unless you've lived a life a certain way steeped in a certain cauldron of self work and culture work and rites of passage or like all these things right that that are required in a way to know what to do when those moments show up oftentimes you won't be ready for them right you won't you'll confuse a kind of personal discomfort so maybe in a way you'll confuse that or that'll trump a a requirement to show up in certain moments right and one one example though i just give from a gathering not too far away from here, but it was a youth and elder gathering. And I was a facilitator. I was asked to come help facilitate and weave the weekend. And there was one time we had a council where the youth and the elders were supposed to sit together and talk about stuff, right? And with the founder of the whole retreat center, who at that point, I think it was in his maybe early 70s, but it's quite spry and dressed young and that whole thing. And And when the time came to open up the space and offer initial framing, he got off his seat and sat on the ground and basically turned to the youth and was like, I'm just like, I want to learn from you guys. Like, what do you have to say? And this kind of chummy, it was like this chumminess, right? Like, hey, we're all just buds here. And, and it was so offensive, <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: right? It was so offensive. I feel at least the youth too were like, what is he doing? Like, get off the floor. Like, as in, it felt disingenuous that in a time when actually they're saying, hey, look out at the world that we see. This is something that Steve says too about any kind of older person who's like, like judging youth. He's like, before you judge them, sit next to them and look at what they're looking at, right? Look at the world that is coming for them and then maybe have a bit of empathy maybe or compassion to like, wow, that's a rough coming, oncomingness, right? And so this moment when the fellow sat down, he's like, hey, I want to learn from you. It was like a great betrayal. Right. Because unless there's any older folks that sort of, in, by the way, they are, make the case that it's worth getting older, right, in any fashion, it's hard, it's really hard to see what the benefit is, right? And inadvertently, what creeps in is this kind of the same thing that a lot of older generation deals with, which is this terror, right, of age, right? This terror of getting older, this terror of, I don't want to lose. I don't know, being hip or something, right? And, and then there's culture work that actually needs to be done that doesn't get done, right? That's the other piece. And I m- it might have been young that said that the idea that every generation has spirit work, and if they don't do it, it accrues to the next generation. So that's what we're in, I think, is that there's a lot of spirit work that's been accruing now. And the other, maybe the ultimate twist here is that I, I've experienced exactly what I think Steve has said when you, know, you realize that you're no longer the younger generation who's like justified in looking at the next one being like, you guys screwed up now it's on us. And when I had this very experience when I was living, you know, about a year or so ago in a, in a home and there was the roommates who were also the owners of the house just basically they, you know, we lived close proximity. And so we bumped up against each other sometimes. And this young guy, he was probably in his 20, 21, 22. And at one point he, my, my son was gifted these ball pit, like a little ball pit from his grandparents, like this little, little thing with all these like colored balls plastic yeah. and of course i like cringe a bit and i'm like all oh, that pollution and everything but also i'm like it's from grandpa and so i don't know what to do but he, he and of course our son loves it so he plays and anyway a few of the balls got loose and we're in the grass and i remember one night have the fellow this young guy who you know has a bit of a chip on his shoulder in general it seems but he comes up to me late at night and like knocks on the door and like hello and he's like hands me the ball and he says just remember we're coming after you Like something like that, like very (laughs) menacing, right? I was like, what? And it was this like, basically like saying, like this, these choices, like this, my sense is that this pollution that your kid is throwing around or like the consequence of this way of being is accruing to us. Like that really was this indictment, right? And I was like, and I turned around, I was like, are you talking to me? Like, (laughs) and he was. And so in that sense, there's this idea, right? Of course, that all of a sudden, we're already this generation, a millennial. I'm a, I, I think I'm what's known as an elder millennial. I'm 81. Yeah. We're already in the crosshairs of you guys screwed up. You didn't do your yeah. job to the, to many of the youngers, which is, it's sobering to realize that time has already come.
0: Yes. I also had a moment like that. I had a really intelligent young woman on my podcast who's the daughter of close friends of Chris and I who is a part of Gen Z. And I think I, anticipated having her on the show like we're gonna be on the same page you know (laughs) like we're on the same team and it was very much like oh no like according at least to her and her little world of her generation that they're already coming up with this idea that millennials have not done enough or are putting them in saying you guys need to fix it when they're i think she was 15 or so when i 14 or so when i interviewed her Mm -hmm. a few years ago Yeah, yeah that's pretty wild there's so many things to say about that. I, When you were talking, I was thinking about this prevalent trend that I feel has come up in my generation and the generations below us as well around safety and safe spaces and all the rest. And I, I worry sometimes that... Of course, everything is nuanced. Ultimately, yes, we do need to feel safe in order to be vulnerable or to do anything dangerous or difficult. But I do worry that part of this energy or the function of elderhood is super uncomfortable and extremely confronting. (laughs) And that if we're identifying all of those, I think this came up in your course as well, these really messy, sticky areas that don't feel very good to us and the sort of dogma around that right now, that what's, quote, good or helpful feels like very neutral and safe and validating as opposed to confronting.
2: A few things swim up. One, I can't help but recall the classic Simpsons episode, which maybe you'll know immediately, depending if you're a fan of at least a few early years, (laughs) when there's an episode where this kind of personal growth guy comes to town. And he gives a seminar, and his whole shtick, right, is he's empower folks to live their best life or whatever it is. And I think at one point, right, he gets barred on stage, and they're chatting, and he's like really centering this child, right, of like, what is what wisdom does he have, something like that. Anyway, I can't remember the exact scene, but it arrives at this mantra, which is do what you feel like, right, something like that, like do what you feel like that, and that becomes like, the, and all of a sudden the whole town. He's like, yeah, that's it. Like, Do what I feel like. And then, of course, it takes it to the upteenth level, and then the whole town basically collapses because everybody's just doing what they feel like and not handling the things that need to be done. So there, that, that kind of comes up a little bit for me of this sense of now, right? This, yeah, idolization of if it doesn't feel good, it's like wrong, right? Or if I experience discomfort, it's- Like harmful. It must not be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like discomfort equals harm, yeah. which is, again, a very- slippery way of approaching things because again it does create a sense of yeah trying to keep the world at a distance that that it loses the capacity for i think dynamic generative conflict actually is one aspect right and even how a conversation where you can really entertain multiple possibilities steven calls this actually the skill of ambivalence right? Ambivalence is typically how it is, right? Whatever. It's ambivalent, but it's actually ambivalent to actually hold multiple perspectives at the same time as a skill. Mm. And, and I think that's starting to, that's certainly in, in disarray. I think these days with, it's, you really have to ascertain like whose side do you want, right? Is the first question. It used to be probably maybe in the U S at least a political question, right? Republican or Democrat, right? Which side do you want? But now it's, even those lines have been so bizarrely reoriented. So (laughs) It, there's this kind of yeah adherence to, are you on the side of like whatever anybody feels is right side versus the dinosaurs? Is it often this kind of tone that can creep in? And mm-hmm. the one thing I'll say about that, which feels probably important, is just that uh, what I see in this ongoing polarized tension is really actually a complexity problem, which is uh, I think at no point in history has any universal worldview had to essentially be adopted or imposed on a diverse amount of people to get in the same story, if that makes sense. One can maybe make the case for religion, Christianity, or Islam, or these kind of things. And certainly, there's uh, something to wonder about there. But what I was thinking recently was, again, this whole relationship between woke kind of progressivism and the the kind of traditionalist other side the right right wing or whatever that is and how it's like each side is basically saying the other side needs to agree with us right like as in because yeah. if they don't they're clearly backwards or whatever it is and and it's actually just a really challenging thing because i again i think anytime you try to apply any kind of monotheism among, across enough people they're all going to differ actually in some ways whereas the way i say it is that there's no we to appeal to actually Right. You could make the case we, you know, and say in the US, I'm in Canada, but you could say there's the we of us, the United States. But how often did how many states disagree with each other on like basic stuff? Right? Or even things like abortion, right? When does life begin or not? It's like every these states can disagree with each other. And there's this kind of desire in a way to say everybody has to get on the same page. But it's actually a big challenge because everybody is actually in different places. So I don't know the responses to that, but I just see that's so much of the problem, right? It's like there's actually no we to appeal to because we're in a weird place where nation states are a fiction, right? Yeah. Nation states are just a fiction that people are agreeing to and live out. Whereas specific bioregional societies, i.e., indigenous cultures that were specific to place, seem to me more likely to be able to agree on stuff mostly, right? right? Because it's like small enough that you can actually come to some shared understanding about things.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine that. Also then has provoked the backlash of this sort of heightened individualistic, I need to protect myself and my authenticity above all else mentality, uh, which I feel like is also, I think Stephen said something in a conversation with Kimberly Johnson about how this kind of me first individualistic framework is a sort of fracking to any kind of community mindedness that we could have salvaged or created. And I thought that was really true and something that I unfortunately saw crop up even more so, I think, in the past few years, especially with COVID and in the absence of we, who do we protect, who is worth protecting or who is not worth Mm -hmm. protecting, I think.
2: Even just what does it mean to protect, right? Because again, we don't have to go down COVID rabbit holes in a moment, but you could say, right, for some people protection was actually protecting a certain core freedom, right? To not be imposed on or to to essentially become, you know, experiments for genetic engineering or something, right? Like that's one side. And the other side is saying, no, we need the vaccines to protect each other from getting sick because if you don't, you're an asshole, right? From an individualistic (laughs) asshole. But it's like, again, there are like very different understandings of what to protect means, for example. And I just say this around gender. So what's interesting as well, though, is I think so much of the so the, the the acceptance or the the kind of edge of gender trans progress that whole kind of like you need to agree on this side of things or things need to change obviously seems to me it's motivated largely by mitigating harm right now that's just something I think to really be to center because. Uh, you know, from a statistics saying, you know, 60 or something, I just read some stats recently, 60% or more or something of trans kids like try to commit suicide, you know, before they're a certain age, how much violence against trans people, violence against non-binary people. So that's all it's, that's worthy to really say, okay, this is actually what's animating a lot of this. And so if somebody on the other side is like, that makes me uncomfortable to think about, I don't know, non-binary people or trans people, it's like, okay, you can feel uncomfortable, but this person just doesn't want to get beat up in the street. Right. So it's like, There is a real world need to shift culturally a certain degree of, yeah, mitigating harm absolutely, and without that as a sort of recognition, that's actually why where a lot of this is coming from. I believe that it it loses orientation, right? It just becomes a kind of preferential, or I don't know, orientation as opposed to wait a second. There's actually something we really need to address here, and it's (laughs) it is harm, it is direct harm. But then (laughs) that's a bit different though than saying if you're not you know believe us, then you're your backwards. So anyway, a lot of threads in there to unpack, but it's it's why it's so difficult actually to approach this stuff.
0: Yes, totally. I used to, I think the first time I or one of the first times I thought about this was before the woke stuff was getting too intense, but it was around cultural appropriation and the backlash around that specifically that I was witnessing back in 2017 or so. And I just couldn't help to think like, I really don't think this is about dreadlocks, you guys. Like we're spending so much time and energy Talking about this, what ultimately feels like a distraction, because I agree, like the root issue is like injustice and inequality and the lack of awareness around different cultures and the harm that's been done over the course of centuries. But I don't necessarily think that the level of rage or silencing or whatever the strategy is, is actually helping that. And speaking to your point about we. Such a crumbling with that, too, in the United States, but I, I think abroad as well, the lines of political parties, these communities, I think we once felt were at least somewhat coherent, maybe that was a mirage, but at least we were we, there was the illusion that they were more coherent, and now it feels far more diverse and confusing where those lines remain
2: hmm. let's here, here's another little bit around village that it seems interesting to wonder and this is something steve talked about this idea that in village you don't have to like everybody right yeah because (laughs) if you're only around people that all agree with you then that's pretty much a cult right so it's just good to wonder about like as in because the villages my understanding right is when yeah a lot of people bump up against each other because they're actually trying to achieve something like they're trying to village as a verb and and so they don't have this uh, this ability to just float around and to like-minded pods which is often what happens today in these different places that get colonized even harsher i don't know tulum or these like hot spots of new paradigm culture and so it is an interesting time it's like yeah we can sort of migrate into like-minded folks but then we lose that necessary challenge of worldviews that actually keep each other in check in some ways so it's just worth noting that now the other thing i'll say around Gender, which I find fascinating, is I do think that, like Steve had talked about this in my interview with him, but he said maybe masculinity and femininity are ways of inquiring. Right, that's one thing to wonder about. And I also, in parallel, say I think something that it was I think it was might have been Bio Kamalafe said around this idea of masculinity as a strategy. Right, that what we understand. Masculinity and like how it expresses itself within a certain cultural paradigm is a strategy based on those factors, right? And so I'm imagining, for example, in a I don't know traditionalist culture that is less liberated from drudgery by tech, right? That there's very real functions that need to be fulfilled within the culture for everyone to get by and to thrive. And so in that sense, masculinity now has like a, a purposeful application right and so certain factors certain values are are called forth now in this times where we are in some ways obviously artificially or at least temporarily who knows technically buoyed or buffered from certain necessary functionality certain roles that need to be fulfilled in a culture uh all of a sudden those kind of obvious orientations now are, are just dissolved right so now it's like you really are You're kind of liberated to a sort of preferential orientation to how do you want to express, right? And it's a lot less clear. Now, I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing, but it seems to be part of why it's so hard to arrive at a new universal, men should be this way or women should be this way because there's actually, it's not bound to anything really anymore, right? Mm -hmm. It's not bound to an actual specific need to fulfill certain functions per se. So, in that way it's hard to make the case that going back to certain functions makes sense but it's also is it a victory that everybody just gets to decide because i feel like there's something lost there as well and this is also why i turned to myth right that there seems to be clues within myth and the mythic imagination which kind of liberate more imaginal possibilities around these questions rather than using another universalist approach as a sort of blunt instrument that everybody has to get on board with.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel like this is a good segue to talk a bit about Tamara. I don't know how many people listening know what Tamara is. So I'd love for you to talk a bit about what it's about and how you discovered it. And maybe just to plant the seed and we can come back to it later. You had said something to me, over Instagram recently about like how it was no utopia, but you learned a lot. And my first reaction was like, but is there such thing as a utopia? Because I certainly thought maybe I could try to create one and have, uh, yeah, maybe redefined what utopia means. So I'm curious mm-hmm. to hear how you heard of Tamara and maybe what you thought it would be like versus when you left what you'd
2: mm-hmm. experienced yeah first thing to mention around utopia so my understanding of the word etymologically is actually means no place right so it's just right. interesting right that we use the term utopia to mean actually trans- yes is no <laughs> i was gonna
0: place. bring that up too i think utopia means utopia doesn't exist but anyway
2: <laughs> yeah the way i see it too is it, it but it is an orientation right and so mm-hmm. i think of for example train tracks receding into the distance right and from your optical perspective they look like it looks like the train tracks meet right as you look into the distance but when you go down the tracks of course they don't meet they mean they continue in parallel but that doesn't mean you're not moving forward you're not moving down the track right so i see that as essentially the orientation towards utopia which is you never arrive there but it certainly is worthy of orienting in that way so tamara is a community in portugal which was started by germans Seeding back to the late 70s, 80s by three founders, Dieter Doom, Sabine Lichtenfels, and Charlie Rainier. And they really wanted to create an alternative society like a lot of folks in that wave. And ultimately, created a project that became Tamera. But one of the key radical commitments they made was to really live by this free love understanding, right? Liberate love from fear. That's what they talk about. And that meant really tossing out any convention around relationships, pair bonding, monogamy, just this idea that that stuff was off limits. They really wanted to center it and explore. Hmm. And so in, I believe, the mid-90s, they migrated to southern Portugal for different reasons. And then now they've grown to be approximately 170-person community, multi-generation. And they've continued in their research. Now, I was first contacted by them because they saw a short, of, I did, short film. I believe it was the one with Charles Eisenstein called The Revolution is Love. Just a little hmm. short I did around the Occupy movement. And they reached out to say, hey, you know, we're doing interesting things with love around here. Be curious if you might want to come check it out. And so I ended up joining with a new friend there, John Wolfstone. Long story there. But uh, we both ended up back in first, he was already been to Tamara, but my first time in 2015 for the Global Love School. And this is like their premier offering specifically for activists, peace workers, media makers that Mm -hmm they come to attend like a a 10-day immersion really in their research field around love, sex, partnership. Mm -hmm. I myself was also a couple years out of a divorce by then. And so I was also in this like road of ashes, is maybe what Robert Bly would say. And really in this question, like what, what happened? What can I learn here? And I'll say that, so Tamara, not initially, then I, we thought it would be a short film, 10 minutes, easy. And, of course, being there a bit longer, we're like, wow, this is not (laughs) a short film. This is a feature. And that created essentially an eight-year odyssey to to make this film, this feature, which is now out in the world. You've seen it now, now. It's called The Village of Lovers. And really, the film was meant to transmit their field of trust, right, is really the core intention. And we show that through their practices and their connection to the land and solidarity with each other and this and that. But it really is like visiting another planet because they have really unearthed and and sort of re-stitched a a different social web, a different way of being together. And they're still adhering to love free from fear, which is again, it's quite radical. That doesn't necessarily mean everybody has to be polyamorous. Even the word polyamory doesn't quite translate there because again, it's a very different social field. But ultimately it changed me utterly and for better, for worse, because everybody around me is probably sick of me saying, but. At Tamara, <laughs> I'll pause there, and maybe if you got other questions,
0: yeah, yeah. You, I also wrote, read an article that you recently posted. I think the title was "Is Tamara a film about polyamory?" And the I want to applaud your both in the writing and in the film desire to define what they mean by free love or eros or love free from fear, and it's. I've had an experience over the past several years that's really interesting, I think, and maybe you felt similarly after my divorce, especially because I had been so interested in unconventional relationship structures for so long. And my dad grew up in New York in the 80s. And even though he got married, like I was just witness to the ways that the sort of now elder gay community had reconstructed community and peer support networks in a way that was super inspiring to me. But over the years as time has gone on, I realized that it really, you know, as far as the health of the relationship is concerned, the structure of it is pretty incidental <laughs> to what's going on inside that structure. And so, I'd love for you to talk maybe expand a bit more about what, quote, free love actually looks like specifically in regard to trust and honesty and not necessarily I'm free to be loved by and to love anyone at any time and have no commitments or ongoing relationships or
2: something like that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, well, it's worth saying that. So Tamara, like they say, they want to practice love free from fear. And so what that means is not that fear doesn't come up and all the emotions and things like that, attachment issues, jealousy, all that stuff. That's still comes up a lot. It's just that they've built a social architecture to work with it in different ways, rather than keep it privatized. So that's a major shift mm-hmm. that they recognize that. No, again, no matter the, st- the structure, if you're you know open relating, if you're monogamous, celibate, even you can only really do so much alone. And that, especially between lovers, that so much heat can be generated in passion and conflict and all the rest. That holding a wider container to move through this stuff and to integrate is absolutely vital. Now, the other thing with Tamara is that they recognize that the power of life force is what they, how they define eros, that humans partake in it and, and sexual love is one way of partaking in that, but that ultimately it's really this allowing in the current of life and using that actually to orient how a society is structured, right, and what's worth doing and they often say like, where is the energy? Where is the energy? <laughs> and I've been in council spaces too, where they'll be like, okay, this is boring. And, and it's not like, it's not like they're saying it has to be fun all the time. It's not quite like that, but it, there is something really important when you start tracking energy, right? And mm-hmm. tracking vitality. Because you can be in a very subtle moment in like a group process, right? And you can be totally transfixed because it's just, there's so much energy there. And then other times, you know, if it's just like circling in the head or whatever it is, it's just, it is boring. It, everybody generally can feel that. And so it, it, they, they get really good at tracking again, what are the processes needed to like move energy in the right ways and how, what's needed to help not just process issues, but also to build trust in community. And oftentimes when, you, when, you're, when, you be, when you're in the presence of someone moving through a process or like sharing their inner landscape in the right way, right? Anybody who's been in community and has been in like circles that never end, or are just poorly facilitated. It can really just cause a lot of more conflict, or harm, or boredom, whatever. But in, in a right space, that can actually build trust, right? Because you're like, wow, now I understand this person a bit more, right? And now I can see their struggle. Oh, wow, I've struggled the same, right? So they're constantly modifying and, and practicing to build this social field of trust. They call it a greenhouse of trust. And again that differs generally i think quite a bit from polyamory and open relating as it's practiced in outside of this culture because generally you don't have a committed group of people who are willing to commit to doing this kind of process work together right in in a kind of trust field of solidarity oftentimes there's sort of atomized relationships right where depending on the relationship structure right maybe you got a polycule that all commits cool okay great but for a lot of folks it's not really what they understand is even needed and oftentimes, it ends up being a kind of yeah, a kind of self-gratifying impulse uh, uh, aspect to it, which can just create a lot of mayhem, right? And of course, they call it mm-hmm. polyagony for a reason. You just end up multiplying the amount of challenges you have, as you would in a monogamous relationship, but just spread out now with more amplified through, through more relational dynamics because they're not really contained in the right way intelligently. Through processes like these so you know again those are some of the different differentiators which i think are really important to note and often why it's like unless you have really stepped out of a culture to see oh this is the rest of the tapestry that supports the fullness of relating uh and also takes care of the aspect of belonging right which is actually at the core of so many relationships i think partnerships right is actually it's a core need to belong and in the absence of a wider organism of belonging, i.e., village. We put that on our partnerships, right? And it's a kind of mixing of two very different needs that can, again, often lead to overburdening the partnership with this other longing, actually, which m- would have been served by, again, a great love for a group of people that you've deepened with over decades and more.
0: Yeah, totally. Did you feel like when you were spending time there that Tamara? Was it all sort of like acting as a microcosm of the broader culture? So issues or conflicts that were happening in the broader culture were coming into Tamara, Or did you feel like because there was that support network and that sort of overarching community and commitment, that the issues or conflicts that were coming up were more specific to that realm than the sort of bigger cultural (laughs) conflicts that...
2: We see. i again, I came under generally through love schools right so that would actually be we were in, there was a a kind of journey right through through a ten day program and, mm-hmm. and a bit more time before beyond that but I was also embedded with visitors right some of them had been visiting Tamara for many years mm-hmm. and other love schools some were new and so yes yeah, so certain challenges that would come up like in forum, which is one of their main group process skills or practices stuff would come up <clears throat> now it's interesting that here's a really concrete example is one of the subjects in the films talks about how he came to Tamara. he was a Israeli and engaged in peace work in Israel-Palestine. And then also Palestinians would come and Tamara. you know, they've done pilgrimages out to that region because they call it, it's an acupuncture point, they say on the planet for essentially, they can support this morphogenetic healing or this healing in this place, then that morphogenetic field would ripple out. And Uri is his name, the Israeli makes a really powerful point where he says, we had to come all the way to Tamera to meet our neighbors, right? Because the trust and the trauma that is so active and alive in those relations in Israel-Palestine, they had to come to Tamera in a way to diffuse the trauma enough to actually make contact, right? Through the support of the trust field. And then from there, it's like, now work can be done, right? Because if you can make contact, one thing that came to me through in a lot of this steeping in this was uh, a kind of I don't know if I call it a mantra or some kind of like commandment or something, but it was an insight I feel, which was contact ends the war. And by that meaning, if you can make contact with the other, or the other makes contact with you in any fight, any conflict, whether that's between nations or individuals and lovers, if you can make contact, really that's the foundation of empathy, right? And so oftentimes when we're entrenched in conflict it's like you can't see the other right you're really because they're just the object of your scorn or projections or hatred and if you and yeah so for me it's coming into contact inevitably melts that the war mentality right because it's Mm -hmm. like oh you're just a human oh you're just struggling like me oh and and that's the beginning of an us i think right of like wow we're in this together in a fashion right Mm -hmm. so all of these things you have really affected me deeply and continue to and again how to live it outside yeah. is a, is an ongoing question
0: yeah you just asked yourself the question I was gonna ask you but yeah as far as you're integrating that into your life I think community for many years now has been like a north star for me but boy is it a struggle to kind of figure out like what does that mean and how is it structured and is it structured at all or a little bit or very structured and uh You know, I sort of flow back and forth between thinking, oh, maybe it's best to kind of integrate some of these ideas and practices into my life. I don't necessarily need to create a Tamara of my own. But then there are so many times when there is a conflict or a really deep betrayal of some kind between two people or a complex relationship someone's helping you or or participating in your life in in a variety of ways but then one of those things stops and how does how does the rest continue and i find myself flip flopping between the casual like route and like holy crap this actually really needs structure and commitments and ritual and then of course when i go too far in that direction i think but this is so like cult-like and there's too many rules and <laughs> too much structure and so yeah I, i'd love to hear your relationship to that as well especially mm-hmm. how you've maybe integrated some of those things you saw there or have tried and, and couldn't integrate because of the lack of structure
2: mm-hmm. yeah lots to talk about i know we don't have too much time but i could just say that so we've tried over the years since coming back from Tamara and returning again and working on the film, myself and others have tried multiple times in multiple iterations to practice a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. And one in particular was we had a collective home on an island here nearby where there was around eight of us, eight of us, and including my partner and I, and who we just had a child as well. Um, and we really tried this like mini experiment, right? We even called it the emergence project. So we deliberately crafted a, a sort of ended up being close to a year, but in particular, like a three month depth focus mm-hmm. where we would do things. Yeah, we do forum. We would create yeah, ritual structure. We would in different practices. And ultimately, what was interesting was so much learning from that. I saw I could write pages and I yeah. might someday. But one of the things we found was it was the c- adherence to the couples dynamic which often was at odds with the collective field. There's a kind of hierarchy there that was present, right? Of course, of like oh, this is my like my partner, my lover, because at least uh, two, three of us in the field had partners. Like we were partnered, not not as polyamory, but just mm-hmm. in sort of monogamous partnerships. And then another couple, interestingly enough, got together through the project. The two single <laughs> ones got together mm-hmm. uh, yeah. for a time. But what was interesting is oftentimes that was like the the kind of primacy of a couple versus the collective field, right? Was like an interesting tension point a lot of the time. As well, new parents versus non parents. That was a very significant gulf. And again, us, my partner and I being new parents, we didn't really anticipate, right, of how significant that gulf would be to suddenly be drawn into what's required to be present and tending a young being as much as we had to. And again, a tension point between. The group field and even the group field, again, if in a village context, the kind of support that would have been automatic, right, to new parents or to like support with the child, like this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. it, it just would have been unquestioned, right? Like I hear stories from indigenous cultures or even like big families, right, where it's like obvious, like there is a support that's like automatic and ongoing. And in this case, it was difficult often to make the case for youngers as well as non-parents of like actually how much support was needed. And so that was just a gulf, right? My friend who's a parent, two kids too, he says, you know, there's basically two people in the world, those with kids and those without, (laughs) just because of how different your world changes actually, right? Of All of a sudden, what you prioritize, what's asked of you, oftentimes a grind that is just relentless. Yeah. I was going to
0: say specifically outside of community, I feel like, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And again, but even in community, we were right. And again, we found like, oh, wow, it wasn't automatic hey yeah let me help out and i'm not blaming them i'm just saying it's actually it is quite a gulf to understand actually what's required when you're not really around parents like that or young parents like that so that was one aspect but ultimately i can say we learned a ton we found that like there needs to be a balance between process work and just like living and land work like being the land working the gardens like that became really crucial otherwise you spin out in the social field too much in the process Mm -hmm. field And I'll say when we did a a deep dive like like five days of like the deepest dive, what was fascinating was there's a lot of things that were very interesting. (laughs) But one thing that emerged that we just by listening to the group field of like, what what do we need? Like what wants to happen? Right. This question of like, what's here? and What wants to happen? We created this very simple practice where we realized, oh, all we actually need to do is create the opportunity for each of us one at a time to just share our life story and be listened to like that became and then we're like oh and that just became clear and we did that for like three days right between us we gave each other about an hour and a half two hours of just like share your life story right how you imagine it to be and it was profound actually right how simple a practice that was and how much that actually brought a sense of being understood being seen being received trust of just like wow that's that happened to you you know and this That sense of just the magic of that was wild, actually. And so, again, for me, what became the image was almost like a way of creating these smaller pods that can accelerate healing, a certain degree of personal healing within a committed pod. That to me became really interesting, right? Because again, trying to build like whole villages is often like it's daunting (laughs) and very, it's a lot. But just concentrating on small pods, Jack Zimmerman, who wrote The Way of Counsel, he has this. This frame, I guess he offers of he calls it the the circle of lovers, right? Which is essentially not people polyamory, but they could be. But the idea that couples getting together to do couples work, right, regularly supporting each other in this way, is again one model as well, like an attainable model of mutual support that even just starting there can lead to. Who knows, right? So being in them in the film, we have her. She's saying near the end of the film, "Hey, we were three in the beginning, and we just step by step dared to." Listen to what was the next step, where was life pulling us, and it became what it became.
0: Amazing, thank you so much, Ian. I'm sure we could record several more podcasts on all of these topics for next time. Yeah, why don't you, if you could tell people where to find you and your work? I know you're in various places, so for whatever people are interested in,
2: yeah, you can check out my main website mac.com that's I-A-N-M-A-C-K.com, like branches off to all my films, essays, things like that. I'm on Substack. There's two offerings. There's Dispatch from the Future, which is my main newsletter, and then The Mythic Masculine, the podcast, which also you can find on Spotify, wherever. And then TheVillageOfLovers.com is the best place to go for specifically looking at what you want to connect to the film, see the film, screenings, upcoming near you. The last thing I'll just offer is I'm also the co-founder of the School of Mythopoetics, which is really bringing together folks around myth, story, ritual, things like that. So, again, feel free to check that out if this kind of stuff interests you.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Ian. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to that conversation. The last conversation, at least in this format, of me interviewing someone else that you will hear On this podcast, as I mentioned in the intro, this is the second to last episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, which is very, very bittersweet. I have so much gratitude and just overwhelmed by thinking about how amazing this project has been and how helpful it was for me in creating this life that I've created and how many of you became a part of that as a result. If you would like to stay up to date on what I'm working on, I will be keeping my Substack alive. I will still be writing. There is still a book club, and all of that is on Substack, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot Substack dot com. That link will stay the same. Uh, The name of the publication, the name of the Substack will change, but the link will stay active. So please sign up for that. It is free, and I want to keep in touch with all of you, and yeah, Substack's the place where I will be. I'm gonna play you out with a song from Gregory Alan Isakoff's new album called Feed Your Horses, which I think is very thematic. And no no, there's so much there's so many songs on this new album of his, Appaloosa Bones, that I feel like I'm projecting my own meaning into, but I feel like that's so what's so lovely about his lyrics is that they are quite open-ended and so many different things can be applied. And as I was listening to this song a few days ago, I felt like, you know, giving myself permission to land here in Crestone and in this new home and recognizing how much of a lack of belonging I felt really in my entire life. Um, But especially since, you know, becoming a young adult, I think I calculated at some point that I'd moved like every couple years for 20 years or something. Um, just never really grounded anywhere. And there's been a lot of hesitance and fear about grounding here in Crestone because I feel like the rug is going to be pulled out from under me or something's going to happen and I'm going to have to leave. And And maybe that's true, but I'm trying to work against that kind of always in flight uh, place that I feel like I've been for so long. And so giving myself permission to say, I will be here. This is where I'll be. This is where you can find me. You know, everyone else is free to go off and explore what they will. And I hope they also find what they're looking for. But at the very least, I know where I'll be and I'll feed your horses when you're out of town. I <laughs> will still be here when you get back. I hope that more of you come visit uh, and see this place this magical place in Colorado, this Crestone that I keep talking about. And yeah, or at the very least keep following along on Substack and let's see how we can all connect and where we're all headed both together and separately. Until next time.
3: city that says on fire You've been searching the big light Searching the skies chant to the ballroom In that white wedding gown I'll feed your horses When you go into town Feeding train, you gotta catch. You've been searching the subways for the perfect match. You come through the corners of the old lost, unfound I'll feed your horses when you're looking around. Let